Welcome to the Independent Advisors Podcast, where we dive into the world of stocks, tradable markets, and financial planning with Jessup Wealth Management's Chief Investment Officer, Mark McEvely, and CEO, Matt Jessup. You'll hear tips, tricks, and strategies to address your financial well-being, and most importantly, conveyed in a way that everyone can understand. Here are your hosts, Mark and Matt. Hey everyone, welcome to episode 226 of the Independent Advisors Podcast, where Matt Jessup and I, Mark McEvely, bring you everything you need to know from the past week in the world of financial markets and financial planning. So good morning, Matt. It's good to be back on together after a brief hiatus. Yeah, I'm looking forward to this one. Yeah, me too. I had so much content. It was, was tough for me to get it down to the the time elements of what we usually do. Well, yeah, with the week uh, the markets had last week, uh, there's no shortage of, of things to discuss. So absolutely, um, I think we'll both have some content for the next couple of weeks where we won't have to do much research. So no. Um, as always, we will quickly review the month-to-date and year-to-date performance numbers of the major market indices that we track. This data is from YCharts, and as of the market close on November 8th. S&P 500 index is up 4.5% for the month of November and up 14% year-to-date. The Dow Jones Industrial Average up 3.2% for the month and up 2.9% for the year. The NASDAQ Composite Index up 6.2% for the month and up 30% for the year. The Russell 2000 Small Cap Index up 3.3% for the month, still negative 2.6% for the year. And the Vanguard All World X United States ETF is positive by 3.4% for the month and up 3.6% for the year. Three month treasury rate sitting at 5.54%, the two year treasury rate at 4.93%, 10 year treasury rate at 4.49%. Um, Moving on to big headlines and current events from the past week, uh, continuing with the theme of rates, the 10-year Treasury yield has fallen more than a half a percent in a little over two weeks, Matt. Um, so, you know, the story really for the past couple of years has been ra- rising rates. And I think with uh, Jerome Powell's most recent uh press conference with the Fed announcing they're not doing anything with rates right now. They're just holding them where they are. Um, this is the market, I think, telling us that the Fed might be done. I, I would definitely interpret it that way. I mean, that's a massive drop in, in two weeks. All right. And we'll have some more data on what that means when the Fed uh, stops raising rates here in a little bit. Um, but last week, obviously, was a big week for uh, stock market bulls. A uh, tweet from Bespoke uh, said, final stats, S&P 500 positive by 5.85% for the week, the best week since November 11th of 2022. The NASDAQ 100 positive by 6.48% last week, best week since, again, November 11th, 2022. And the Russell 2000 index was up 7.56% last week, which was its best week since February 5th of 2021. And that's notable, Matt, because uh, small caps have been noticeably lagging this market this year so far in 2023. So uh, not saying it's the start of a new trend, but it is positive to see small caps starting to uh, contribute a little bit. Absolutely agree. 
A um, couple more uh, quick facts for listeners. Um, this came from uh, Jason Gopfert from The Sentiment Investor. He said that there have been two times in the past 40 years when the S&P 500 index rose for seven straight days following a 100-day low. The first was on March 20th of 2023 that marked the end of that bear market. The other was on uh, November 7th of 2023. That's a strong um, stat. Yeah, it's a strong stat. So again, uh, kind of in October of 2022 is when uh, the market really started a big rally up until this point. Um, so kind of similar action in what we're seeing this fall so far in 2023. Yeah. Um, Another interesting stat regarding earnings, Matt. I know uh, the past couple of weeks we've talked about how we're in the middle of earnings season. And according to Charlie Bilello on November 1st of this year, he said that 64% of S&P 500 companies have reported Q3 earnings and they have come in 19% uh, higher than a year ago. And this is the third straight quarter of positive year-over-year -year growth. Quarterly earnings are now just 2% below the record high from Q4 of 2021. That's not bearish. Not bearish at all. Uh, last but not least, we talked about this a little bit last month, Matt, um, but there is another potential for a government shutdown as soon as the 17th this month. Yep. Um, so expect more headlines regarding this topic to pick up. Uh, obviously, about a month ago, the uh, government passed a short-term funding bill, um, but that is in jeopardy here within the next couple of weeks. So we will keep an eye on that. Sounds good. Moving on to tweets, articles, and research from this week. First thing I had, Matt, was a blog post from Joe Fami on November 5th titled Four Reasons for a Year-End Rally. Ooh, so I'm already, um, I'm already interested. Yeah, so I follow uh, Joe's blog and uh, him on uh, Twitter or X, uh, what have you. Uh, he provides some pretty good content, short, digestible, just what uh, most people are looking for. So he says, number one, the big institutions are back. Since they control the market, it's important to analyze what they are doing. And they came back last week with strong volume. The main reason was they interpret interpreted the Federal Reserve is done with their current rate hiking cycle. That doesn't mean that the Fed will cut rates anytime soon, but it does mean stability for the markets. In other words, we are unlikely to see higher rates into year end. I agree. And when we talk about big institutions, Matt, do you want to provide some color and I can as well as to what we mean or what Joe means by big institutions control the market? Yeah, I think what it has to do is a lot of these market strategists of these big firms, I want you to think of everything from Citigroup to Bank of America to Goldman to Morgan Stanley to UBS, start going down the list. You know, they have, in essence, market strategists who make recommendations on what risk exposure should be. And let's just call it for what it is. The last couple of years, a lot of these major Wall Street firms have been very pessimistic and bearish. So their risk allocations have definitely been below industry standards or averages the last couple of decades. So as these institutions, at some point, whether it's now or at some point in the future, They'll, normal, they'll normalize to um, long-term averages. They're gonna have to buy risk assets. They're gonna have to buy stocks at some point. And I think that they've been so pessimistic, and I said this on Bloomberg about three weeks ago when I was on there, they've been so pessimistic, at some point you have to acknowledge you were wrong, the economy's a lot stronger than you anticipated, 
and it's time to get back into normal allocations. That's what you're starting to see right now. Yeah, and when we're talking about um, you know volume in the markets, what we're specifically referencing is you know the amount of money that are that's being transacted in a certain security every single day or every single week or every they're single. They're putting month. more money at work. They're trading a lot more than they were. And when when we talk about that, you know th the big institutions that have billions and billions and billions of dollars are really the ones that have pricing power with the power to move stock prices, right? Yeah, because at the end of the day, it's all supply and demand still. Right. So um, that's what we kind of mean when, when we're talking about institutions and, and their influence on the market. My last comment is going to take time. It's not just a weak phenomenon. This yeah. could take literally quarters to, to normalize. Right. Because, you know, an investment manager can't put, you know, two billion to work in a single security that has a market cap of, you know, 10 billion, for example, because it would completely mess up the market and the pricing of that security. So yep. uh, this does usually take time. Uh, number two is sentiment. I look at many different sentiment measures, and they are all near the low end of their bullish ranges. For example, the NAAIM, which stands for the National Association of Active Investment Managers. Exposure index was at its lowest level since October uh, 2022, meaning that act active investment managers have the lowest stock exposure since October of last year. He says, I can't believe that a normal 10% correction over the past three months created just as much fear as a nine-month bear market in 2022. Either way, all this bearishness is good because the market tends to fool the majority. Number three, seasonality. November and December are historically two of the strongest months out of the year. It should be no secret to the listeners of this podcast. We've no, talked sir. about that. No, um, sir. You've talked about that many times. Uh, at nausea, uh, it seems like this year. Um, number four, technicals. We compare, or excuse me, we completed a rare Zweig breadth thrust last week. It's basically when stocks move from a very oversold condition to a position of strong momentum in 10 days. Bottom line, this bodes well for the market over the next six to 12 months. And, you know, we won't get into exactly what the Zweig breadth thrust is, but like he said, it's, it's basically when breadth is weak, there's a lot of stocks. Uh, making new lows instead of new highs, a lot of stocks declining instead of advancing, and then that quickly switching within a 10-day period to way more stocks advancing than declining, um, and that's what we experienced over the past week. So It's an uncommon event. It is an uncommon event, and he also posted uh, this chart uh, that Jenna will put up for our YouTube viewers. It'll also be in our show notes. Uh, it was a tweet from Ryan Dietrich uh, that outlined all of these, you know, Zweig breath thrusts since World War II, going back all the way to 1945 up until obviously the most recent uh, signal, which was last week. Uh, six months later, the average S&P 500 uh, rate of return up 15%. 12 months later, average S&P 500 rate of return up more than 23%. Um, in 12 months, uh, S&P has been higher every single time that we've gotten this, you know, significant advancement in breadth. So, and the data set's only 20 instances since 1945. Correct. Yeah. So it's pretty pretty rare yeah. for this to happen. Yeah. Uh, second thing I had was uh, another tweet from Ryan Dietrich, and uh, Ryan was talking about um, the Fed being done with interest rates and what that means for stocks going forward. So he says. We've been saying for months that the Fed was done, but seems like others are starting to agree. What does it mean? Looking at the past 10 final hikes, the S&P 500 was up a year later 
eight times and up 14.3% on average. This is important that you're talking about this. Keep going. This is important. Yeah. So if you look at the data set here, again, Jenna will throw this up uh, on the YouTube uh, page and on our show notes. But um, again, going back to 1974, um, you know, the last time uh, the Fed hikes rates in that cycle, um, average returns were up 14.3%. Uh, and 12 months, this is 12 months later from the final hike, and, and stocks were up 80% of the time 12 months later. So, um, again, not saying anything about rate cutting or when the first rate cut is going to be. It's expected that that's going to be sometime next year. But, um, you know, the end of a, a hiking cycle uh, by looking at the data, you know, if you go six, 12 months out, it's pretty bullish. You know, what this makes me think about when you were going over this piece is the stat that a lot of bears or people who are pessimistic on the market are still holding their hats on, which is the whole stat that once the yield curve inverts within 18 months, you will have a recession. And they're quoting this because the last seven or eight instances, it led to a recession 18 months later. This could be the first time in those eight instances where we don't have a technical recession. What's your thoughts on that comment? Um, I think it's interesting because we always, you know, we're always, you know, looking at things when people are saying this time is different. So, um, you know, I don't think we can say that until we're proven wrong. But, you know, I think we've talked about this before. We were at a conference uh, a little more than a month ago, and I was sitting in on a session, and um, the lady that was speaking was from uh, Federated Hermes, I believe, and she said that, um, you know, when presidents are trying to get reelected or they're running for reelection, if they have had a recession within their economy within the past two years, they have not gotten reelected 100% of the time. So I think this administration, I would do the same thing, right? If they're trying to get reelected, yeah. is going to do everything in their power not to have a recession in 2024 because, you know, just looking at the numbers, that would not be a good thing for the Biden reelection bid. Yeah. Um, so it wouldn't surprise me if we if we didn't go into a recession. I think people were expecting 2023 to be the recession year, and this just keeps getting pushed out and pushed out. So it wouldn't surprise me if it got pushed out even further. But um, the conversation with the inverted yield curve, I think it's important to note that the average time between inverted yield curve and recession is around 18 months. Um, and again, that's the average. It's just how, you know, performance numbers work in the S&P 500. We usually don't get 8% per year in the S&P 500. Yep. You get up 30%, down 10%, up 15%, down 6%, right? Yep. Um, so it doesn't necessarily have to be 18 months, but it's definitely something that we and, and other people in our industry are keeping an eye on because it has been such a reliable indicator. Yeah, I'd be curious about this. This is coming. It doesn't tell you exactly when it's coming, though. Yeah. So heightened risk. Heightened risk. There you go. Risk. Uh, last thing I had was a tweet from Mike Zaccardi, who is a CFA and CMT on November third. Uh, Mike said TLT, which is the long-term U.S. government uh, bond ETF uh, here in the U.S., 
would surge 21% if rates fell by one percentage point. On so, the long curve? On the on long, the long end? On the long end. So, Meaning, when I say long curve, listeners and viewers, that we're talking long dated bonds, bonds that have a maturity of 20 years or more. Yeah, correct. Okay. Um, and he, he posted this chart on Twitter, which you'll see on the YouTube page right now, but um, it shows the impact of a 1% rise or fall in interest rates Ooh. and then the total return associated with different bond maturities. Ooh, I like this. So, you know, for example, if we take um, the U.S., you know, five-year treasury bond, he says that if we had a 1% fall in rates, that the U.S. five-year treasury bond would increase by 9.2% on a, on a total return basis. So... Uh, this goes back to something that we've talked about on here before, Matt, is this inverse um, relationship that bond prices and interest rates have. Mm -hmm. You know, when when bond prices are falling, interest rates are usually going up. And when interest rates are going down, bond prices are rising. Um, so this is just a pretty good chart of, you know, how quickly things could turn around once we do get that first rate cut. Um, and again, kind of just going back to the last topic we were talking about is eventually we're going to get another rate cut. We just don't know when. Mm -hmm. So and at some point we're having another recession. We just don't know when. Correct. So, you know, I think a lot of people this year thought an easy trade was we'll just buy bonds because interest rates are going to go down at some point and, you know, the market kind of fooled everybody and interest rates kept climbing. Yeah. Um, so it wasn't as much of a fat pitch as many people it, had expected it to be. But, you know, once we do get that first rate cut, you know, we're going to see bonds come back. Bonds are not dead. The 60-40 portfolio is not dead. It's just going through a rough patch, right? Yeah, I mean, bonds have been in a horrible, horrible bear market for like three and a half years right now. I think the statistic is something like that. Right. And again, we, I think I brought this up a couple of weeks or a couple of months ago, but the highest uh, predictor of bond returns going forward are the starting yield. So when, when yields are high, bond returns for the next three, five, seven, ten 10 years tend to be really strong. Yep. And relative to history or to the past decade or two decades, yields are pretty juicy, pretty mm -hmm. high right now. So I would expect at some point bonds to bottom and turn around. My best guess, sometime in the next six to 12 months, could be dead wrong on that because sure. we could be in a rising rate environment for the next five years. We don't know. I'd argue that when it does turn in the initial, say, six to 12 months when, when bonds do turn, they will temporarily actually have equity-like returns. That's, how, yeah. depressed, oh, that's yeah. how depressed they are. Especially if rates keep climbing between now and that first rate cut. Yeah, you're right. So You're right. Um, that's all I had. I'll turn it over to you. Well, I want to start with the piece from um, one of the big uh, investment banks, Goldman Sachs, on November 8th. So this is very fresh. This is from yesterday. Okay. And the title of this piece of research is their macro outlook. So their big picture outlook for 2024. And the title of the research piece is the hard part is over. You know, I love to hate these, right? I know you do. <laughs> that's why I'm poking the bear. You know me. I got I to poke the bear. So I'm just going to read this because I thought it had some interesting points. And again, you know, when, when our listeners and viewers listen to the news, they're hearing a lot of negative things. They're hearing negative things about the economy, negative things about the American consumer. But let's just look at some of the data, okay? 
So the global economy has outperformed even our, this is a Goldman saying this, our optimistic expectation for the year 2023. GDP, gross domestic product growth, is on track to beat consensus forecast from a year ago by 1% globally and 2% in the U.S., while core inflation is down from 6% in 2022 to 3% sequentially across economies that saw a post-COVID price surge. More disinflations in store over the next year, although the normalization in product and labor markets is now well advanced, its full disinflationary effect is still playing out and core inflation should fall back to the 2 2.5% range by the end of next year. We continue to see only limited recession risk and reaffirm our 15% U.S. recession probability. We expect several tailwinds to global growth in 2024, including strong real household income growth, a smaller drag from monetary and fiscal tightening, a recovery manufacturing activity, and increased willingness of central banks to deliver insurance cuts if growth slows. So I just wanted to kind of throw that out there that not all is bad, um, a lot of posturing by a lot of people that control a lot of money has been more conservative or pessimistic. And my big play is that the next couple of years, you could see things normalize. And so you could have a slight tailwind or risk assets because I think they're under owned. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I, I hope, in my opinion, I hope that we don't see more of these reports because I don't want to see too many big shops or too many people get overly bullish because if we see you know 10 more of these before the end of the year I'm gonna be like oh god okay what's what's 2024 gonna be because everyone was bearish on 2023 and it's been a fine year so far sure that could change between now and year end but um you know one thing that I do think they got right and we've been pounding the table on this all year is that you know or the past two or three years is inflation in the Fed was really the only thing that mattered, you know, to the market. Yep. And if we continue to see this disinflation play out and go back to the, you know, the 2% inflation target, that's, that's pretty good or better than most people expected that they thought that inflation was going to hang on for a lot longer than it has, or it's going to, um, obviously geopolitical conflicts could, reignite inflation such as energy prices with what's going on in the middle east right now but um based on price of oil we don't yeah, seem too interesting, concerned interestingly enough oil uh has has pulled back significantly even with uh what's going on uh across the world so i don't have anything to add you said it perfectly yeah. so my next piece is the nasdaq 100 index breaking out from a downward channel that began mid-summer Jenna's going to put up this chart for our YouTube viewers. This will be in our show notes for our traditional podcast listeners, Mark. What you're going to see here is a chart from Bespoke Investment Group on November 7th, sir. And this chart's going to go back roughly a year. And what you're going to see, and I'll uh, verbalize it for our podcast listeners, it shows the high in the market at the end of July, beginning of August. Since that time period, we've been in this downward channel of lower highs and lower lows. But do you from your vantage point, want to talk about what has happened over the past week and why this might be something that we're bringing up to our listeners and viewers, sir. Yeah, well, I think it's, you know, the, the most simplistic definition of a an uptrend is higher highs and higher lows. And if you look at this chart, um, you know, going all the way back to November of 2022, you see that the QQQ or the NASDAQ 100 ETF is in an uptrend. We have higher highs and higher lows. And then 
all of a sudden, starting in July of this year, we had a series of lower highs and lower lows. So this trend switched from an uptrend to a downtrend. And we finally, looking at this chart, have made a higher high. All we're waiting for now is that for us to make a higher low. So if we pull back, which I would argue is healthy for the markets in the short term, in the short term, we would want to see the pullback hold above that October low that the QQQ made. Mm -hmm. And if we resume higher from that, then we would have put in a higher high and a higher low, breaking which is that downtrend, the first step in, in a new uptrend. Um, so I think that this is, uh, really encouraging. As always, uh, we've seen false breakouts like this before. Mm -hmm. So we could go back and test sure. uh, the October lows. That's not out of the question. But this is definitely a step in the right direction. Um, just from a change of trend over the past three months. Thank you. I don't have to add anything to that, Jenna. He perfectly you like you did my piece for me. That's what I'm here for. All right. My third thing is high cash levels, plus an interesting quote that caught my eye. The first thing I'm going to cover is from Bar Charts on November 3rd. They posted this, quote, private client allocation to cash plus treasury bills is at its highest level in almost 14 years. Could potentially be a tailwind for stocks if there is a rotation of capital back into the equity markets. Next, Jenna's going to put up this chart for our YouTube viewers. It'll be in our show notes, Mark. It's a, a piece from Bank of America. Global investment research going back to 2005. Again, it shows their private clients' allocation to cash and T-bills as a percentage of their total portfolio. And what do you interpret from this chart? Uh, a lot of people are concerned about what's going on right now. Because they don't have a lot of risk exposure compared to history. Mm -hmm. So what you're seeing is it's showing that in October, that got as high as almost 16% of the average private client portfolio at Bank of America was in cash or T-bills. The other relational high was March of 2020, and that's right when the pandemic hit with all that uncertainty. And that got up to 15.3%. And the only even relational period would be the great financial crisis. That got as high as 21%. Um, but in the last roughly you know, 15, 20 years, this is a very rare instance where risk postures are this bearish. Mm -hmm. I feel like I've kind of beat a dead horse on this topic at this point. So again, this is the reason why you listen to the Independent Advisors podcast. You know, you're hearing what is going to be the topic of, of the markets the next couple of quarters is, oh, well, you know, there's so much cash last fall. It's no surprise. I'm just throwing it out there and Jenna can pull this 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 sound bite and play it next spring and we'll see if I'm right. Yeah, and we've been, you know, this has been confirmed by, you know, fund flow reports that I, I read every month is that, you know, there's still this huge injection of inflows into uh, you know, money market mutual funds and um, you know, uh US government bond funds. Sure. Um which which again, I'm I'm fine with. If people want to do that, you know, I think people are calling it uh T-bill and chill now is what I've seen uh, circulating. <laughs> Instead of Netflix on, and chill, it's yeah, T-bill and, and chill. Oh, which dude. is fine. I mean, if you're, if you're comfortable with that, that's fine. I have no issues with that, but we have to be okay giving up a lot of the upside if you're okay with the, the five or five and a half percent return, because just because you're okay with that now 
doesn't mean you will be in two or three or four years. Perfectly said. I was on a video conference review with one of our private clients yesterday, and the client asked me this question at the end of our conversation. Matt, we have excess cash on the sidelines in our checking and savings accounts. What should we do with it? That was the direct question I got. And this is how I responded. I said, it all depends upon your aptitude and ability to see volatility on that money. Mm -hmm. If you are going to put that money to work one way or another, and you don't want to see any sort of volatility, then that answer is pretty clear. You stay in, in short-term treasury bills, and then the, you're going to have the reinvestment risk of potentially rates being lower a year from now. Compared to if you put it in a diversified portfolio, you're going to have to sacrifice seeing volatility on the money. But then I said, when I look out two, three, four years, I think a diversified portfolio at a moderate to moderate aggressive risk level will do better than T-bills. Mm -hmm. Personal opinion. Yeah. And it was interesting when I presented it in that fashion, because really at the end of the day, it's someone's ability to weather or feel comfortable seeing the value of that investment move up and down. Correct. Right? Yep. All right, so I'm gonna combine this with data from B of A. Their head of US uh, equity and quantitative strategies was quoted saying, quote, extreme fear can be just as costly as greed, end quote. This was said on November 3rd. I found that interesting as most investors view greed or being too long stocks as a primary risk factor in investing mark. While not having enough risk exposure can also be a risk factor that investors need to consider. Yeah, it's just like, you know, it's like most things in life. It's a double-edged sword. It's like we all want the high, you know, the high returns that the market generates on average over the long term, but people want to do it without the risk, which I totally understand. I want my right? cake and eat it too. I, I do as well. But it's, you know, unfortunately, it's just, it's not how it works. And, um, you know, again, we were just talking about time horizons, but um, if your time horizon is long, you know, you should be, uh, you know, salivating at what the market has done over the past couple of years because you have the ability to buy in at lower prices. Sure. Um, so, yeah, you know, fear and greed is, uh, is a funny thing and, and how it works in your mind and, and what it, you know, causes you to do. Um, but... Yeah, I, I agree that, that fear can be, you know, just as costly as greed. And the perfect example of that is, you know, during the great financial crisis or during the tech bubble or during COVID, where people just never got invested back into the stock market after selling because true, they sir. couldn't handle it anymore. Very true. Um, so again, typically when you're at your breaking point, quote unquote, and you're like, I, I can't handle this anymore, bottom's usually not that far away. Well said or the turning point, not that far away. I got one quick thing. I have a thought-provoking quote that I would like your reaction to. I saw this, it was a, a post by Seth Golden on November 8th. He's quoting David Tepper, who is a hedge fund manager. The quote is, if you're not buying growth, what you're really buying is a higher probability of a loss. <laughs> What's your thoughts to a quote like that? So is he talking about like, uh, growth versus value. Yeah, or, that's my interpretation. Or, or growth assets versus. I, I, I interpreted either, either growth oriented stocks or companies that are growing their earnings. 
Yeah. Um, you know, I don't, I, I, I would, I guess I would, I would tend to agree with them, but, but listen, I know that we as a firm don't necessarily get caught up in the growth versus value or the small versus large. It's just, we want to own whatever is going up. So whether sure. that's growth or whether that's value or whether that's U.S. stocks or whether that's international stocks, whether it's tech stocks or whether it's bank stocks, we don't necessarily care. We're agnostic to that. So, you know, I just want to buy things that are moving from the bottom left to the upper right hand of the chart. Yeah, well said. And I think the reason that you're highlighting that also is there's a lot of firms out there that have niches or specialities, right? XYZ uh, Investment House specializes in small cap value stocks. One might specialize in mid cap growth. The one thing that kind of makes um, our investment style a little bit different is we're completely agnostic to all that. Mm -hmm. um, I'll turn it back to you for the financial planning topic of the week. Yeah, uh, this was uh, a blog post from uh, Frederick Geishin on October 27th, and it was titled 11 Things I Learned About Investing. I just plucked out five of these, Matt, that I wanted to talk about. All right. Kind of talked about some of these things before about, you know, people writing blog posts of saying, hey, I wish I would have known X, Y, Z 20 years this ago. This will be fun. So uh, first one, which I think was the most important one, is the first job is to know yourself. You have to understand your temperament and your relationship to money. Wrong about your temperament? Watch the market flush you out. A series of market decisions does add up, believe it or not, to a kind of personality portrait. It is, in one small way, a method of finding out who you are, but it can be very expensive. I don't think we need to yeah. go on any further about this because we just talked about this a few minutes ago. Yeah, well played. Um, number two is good investing is mostly boring, working with brief moments of excitement. I say boring because the research process is boring to most people, but not to everyone. It's an endless loop of keeping up with the world and trying to understand things. A company, an industry, a trend, a technology, an event by reading, crunching data and talking to people. Every once in a while, things get exciting, like when you find a great idea or when the market punches you in the face. And exactly those moments, you have to resist and remain calm. It's the inverse of how most people go through life. They run from the grind of mundane work and throw themselves into thrills. Number three is you can learn from any great investor, but often not what you expect. All of them can teach you about human nature, about markets, about resilience, about mistakes, and about the lonely search for opportunity. Study what worked for others, even if you never intend to pursue their strategy. What did they figure out about the world? How would they think about your strategy? What can you learn from the contrast? Remember that all of them wrestled with the same market and the same inner game. Number four is the market will punish you for being in a rush. Well, technically you will punish yourself. I get it. You wanna be rich and enjoy life while you're still young. It's just that the market does not care about what you want. <laughs> it will occasionally offer amazing opportunities, what Soros called a quote-unquote special day, but it does so on its own schedule. Swinging for the fences when you need money is a sure way to lose your capital. And I think, you know, I kind of liken this to like betting, right, Matt? When, mm -hmm. when people are down or they're playing blackjack or poker or they're betting on sports or whatever, when they're down, they try to make it up in one big Yep, right. Yep. They risk it all or risk what they have left to try to make up all of their losses from their past, you know, couple of weeks. Right. Yeah. 
And that's when people get in trouble because the emotional bias starts to take over. It's saying, hey, I lost X amount. I need to at least get back to break even. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of how it works in the stock market is if someone buys a stock, the stock goes down 10%. They're like, I'm holding it until it goes back to break even. Whereas if they sell it 10% loss, that's your loss, 10%. You can't lose 50% or 70% or God forbid, even 100% yeah. with like what we saw in the great financial crisis. Stocks went to zero from mm. over $100 per share, zero. There were a lot that did. It's a very real possibility. And just because it, you know, we haven't seen a lot of those over the past couple of years doesn't mean that it can't happen in the future. Sure. Um, so just because you know, something goes down. I mean, look at some of the banks earlier in the year in March. Right. Signature Bank was over $100 a share. Yeah, exactly. So, again. Um, it could happen any year. Swinging for the fences, uh, not a great way to, uh, you know, to invest. In my opinion, I think, you know, hitting singles and doubles are, are just fine. Even getting walked is just fine. So, we'll, we'll put, as long as we're on well, base, right? I like the baseball analogy. Yeah. Um, last but not least he says very simply that investing is a marathon and your most important job is to survive again and that kind of relates to number four um if you risk it all on one thing and it doesn't go your way you're out of the game yeah right yeah you're out of the game yeah so um matt before we wrap up for the week um just wanted to let people know if they are uh interested in starting their own podcast they can get a first month of blueberry podcasting hosting for free with the promo code jessup wealth which is all lowercase and no spaces use the hosting estimator on their site to determine the best plan for you and don't forget that is jessup wealth for your first month free uh, before we leave it there, Matt, anything else? No, uh, I just think the mention? headlines are going to start migrating towards this government shutdown topic over the next roughly seven to 10 days. Mm -hmm. That'll be more of the focus. And um, I'm going to put some data behind this in the next podcast. I actually have one of our staff members um, digging up him some um, historical data on our own, talking about how the market does before, during, and after a government shutdown, whether it's full or partial. Um, I'm going to have that data from about 1990 to now, but I'm going to give you a little bit of a preview. The data might surprise you as how the market performs during those periods. Yeah, yeah, it'll be interesting to see for sure. Um, I, you know, I wouldn't, it wouldn't surprise me to see a pullback. I actually would probably want a little bit of a pullback or just a break from, you know, the strong returns over the past week in the market. We all know that we can't continue to go straight up like we have for the past week. Um, so don't be surprised if we get a little bit of digestion or, or pullback in the markets. I think that would be healthy uh, before the trend resumes higher, hopefully between now and your end. That's why you listen to the full podcast. You That's get right. to hear that unfiltered comments from the chief investment officer. I love it. Well, thanks everyone for tuning in to episode 226 of the Independent Advisors podcast. Hope you all have a wonderful rest of the week. Take care, everyone.
Thank you for listening to the Independent Advisors Podcast. If you're interested in hearing more, hit the subscribe button so you can be notified every time a new episode gets released. Feel free to share with friends, family, and follow us on Twitter at Jessup Wealth, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Mark and Matt will continue to share beneficial information on these social media sites. Also, check out the podcast tab on their website. That's www.jessupwealthmanagement.com. There you'll find links to every episode of the Independent Advisors. Have questions or topics you want to discuss on the show? Message us on Twitter, LinkedIn, or send an email with the words questions and topics in the subject line to inquiries at jessupwealthmanagement.com. We'll talk about it right here on the podcast. Certain sections of this commentary may contain forward-looking statements based on reasonable expectations, estimates, projections, and assumptions. Forward-looking statements are not guarantees of future performance and involve certain risks and uncertainties, which are difficult to predict. All indices are unmanaged and are not available for direct investment by the public. Past performance is not indicative of future results. This podcast is provided for general informational purposes only and does not constitute either tax, legal, or financial advice. Although we do go to great lengths to make sure our information is accurate and useful, we recommend you consult a tax preparer, professional tax advisor, financial advisor, or lawyer regarding your specific circumstances. Investing involves risk, including the loss of principal. No strategy can guarantee any objective or goal will be achieved.